don't wanna go to work I just wanna chill and play All day Look him dead in the face and say I wish I could just be still asleep while you work Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Jobs Blow Podcast with Brianna and Josh. The podcast for dreamers with day jobs. Hey, we're so glad to be back at the Comic Strip Live in New York City to tell yet another inspiring story from someone pursuing their dream job. Yes, Josh, because as the saying goes, when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. No, you don't. How you doing, Brianna? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. My voice is a little, you hear it? Yeah. It's like, What's just, going on? I've just been on stage every night and like knock on wood, like shows have been packed and sold out but i'm just like screaming at the top of my voice i I don't know how you do it emotionally like (laughs) i don't know how you put yourself in that character multiple times a night and i know you're doing two tonight so Uh, i two last night two tonight two sunday you actually look drained i feel drained yeah you know what it is too it's funny you say that because sometimes i'm like backstage and i'm like you know to start the show i'm just gonna hang in the back this time i'm just not gonna get crazy before the show and then i realized that like part of what my character is is to get people riled up Mm -hmm. and like push them like prime them a little bit and be like oh i'm gonna here come dick jokes there's a lot of them you know and push people to the limit but and so i can't not no and then i'm just at the top by the time the show starts i'm already exhausted so by the time the show ends my voice is like i've been using the mic more which i hate doing but you know sorry but uh you know anyway so i'm trying to rest and like really take care of myself my little guy was like coughing all over me all week and i was like stop cover your mouth cover your freaking you have everybody mouth. in those masks at your house yeah i put helmets i just put the face mask <laughs> down and i'm like enough coughing on dad well i'm drained today because Why? i went out with like some people from my office after Uh-oh. work and they're like 30 something <laughs> Wait, let's and turn the clock back a <laughs> couple of last season when yeah. brianna went out drinking came yeah. to the show the next day and had to leave to throw up <laughs> yeah yeah um so that was great. we went out last night and one drink turned into like four and then they were trying to get me to do mezcal shots and i at least was smart enough to know that would have not ended well for me yeah so Tequila? i did not i did not do did you do your vodka again i hope you didn't No, i did much. prosecco two prosecco and then uh uh, I had beers and actually oh. they treated me okay. Really? Like, were you eating I, while you were drinking? No, but I went home and I ate. Good. And so at the no end of the throw. night, I was eating cheesecake out of a tray. <laughs> yes. So I think a lot of that has to do with the Hello, like, me being here today. Yeah. No, but, but the nice thing is, the funny thing is, since I started this job, there's been this mis- mystery around how old I am. Because <laughs> the things I talk about, like they're like, wait, we're really confused of like how old you are. And so the joke's been that I'm 65. Right. Like, <laughs> and so I've just like, there's only 10 of us. So I've just recently started on. Unve- oh, at, unve- at Michelle and Augustine. They, yes. They're talking about how so old I've are. just recently started to unveil how old I actually am. Are they am. younger or younger? They're older all younger. All I'm, younger. The, I'm like ancient compared to these kids. Yeah. And the nice thing is they're all like, oh, I think you're like 38. I'm like, I love you. I love you. I love you. Right. I love you. That's like, you've just given me a decade and <laughs> I, I will take there it. There was this girl at the show last night and she was like, what are you doing after this? And I was like, I'm going home. <laughs> and I was like, she was like, why? I was like, my, I have two kids that are going to be up at 6 a.m. I was like, how old are you? She's like 21. I'm like, I'm twice your age. Yeah. You have a good night. Yeah. See you later. We're old. Um, okay, so enough about us. So I'm super psyched for the show today. Okay. Not only because our guest, um, I think, really is passionate about what she does, but I, as a huge fan of True, true crime podcasts like Dateline. She's yeah. actually been on Dateline, which when I was watching it and she was on there, I was like, 
oh my god, I fucking know somebody <laughs> on Dateline, but she didn't die, which is a win-win. Yeah. Well, you know, you know our guest. You I know, know our guest. Yes. So. so our guest today, um, well, the show is called A Salad Conviction with Aida Leisenring. Did I, did I say that right? You nailed it. Okay, and um, she's a partner at Barquette Epstein LLP. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, is this our first lawyer? No, it's not this our, our first lawyer. No, it's not because Doug was a lawyer too. Oh, right. This I'm, is our first I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So the funny thing about Aida is I said to her today, I've known her for a decade. We are beach buddies. We are part of the beach family from East Mauritius, New York. I am a part of it through my marriage to Brian. She was a, is a part of it through her friendship um, with Melissa. And we've just every summer met up in the beach. I don't think I ever see you in any other month. I've never seen you with clothes on until today. <laughs> this is the um, hottest podcast and, we've ever done. And she lives in Long Island City. So oh, she's right like, by you. And Brian has run into her multiple times right. on the street. Um, uh, yeah. This is it's is a different attire than the beach. You dress like a lawyer right now. Right. I mean, well, I've got the the Saturday leather pants, but yes, right. it's still hip New York lawyer. <laughs> is is licensing? Is that is that German? It's background? German. It is. Okay, but, but you're you're it, not from where are you from? Originally? I'm originally from Spain. I love that. And so. until today, you were just Aida to me. I never I like really Madonna. got. Yeah, I never had. I never really had a last name. You were just Brianna to me. Yeah, like <laughs> never really. We were not really. I love when Brianna falls in love with our guests. I wouldn't so fall in love. I've known her. It's for, Lady Love. For She's years. seen my beach body. I oh, have. Hello. She has a fantastic beach body. Oh, so do I not. Yeah, she okay. wears a bikini. I stay covered with the the one piece. I used thank to wear a speedo much. when I swam in high Brianna school. Brianna looks awesome. hot. She's, oh, she's okay. got a lot. You guys are both hot. Give yourself some credit. All right. Well, she Aida is here today to talk about her career journey from working in publishing to working on a television show, The Last Defense, um, that she, she produced with Viola Davis, right. which is pretty fucking awesome. That is. Um, to so, being a legit criminal defense well, attorney. She's always, right? yeah, legit. I, I've always been legit. legit. Josh, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so let's talk about your, what is your current job title? So my current job, job title is I'm a partner at our law firm is actually called Barquette Epstein Kieran Aldea and Laturco. But of course I shorten it to Barquette Epstein because I already have to start off with my incredibly long name. Right. Um, but yes, I'm a partner there and we do all sorts of uh, uh, legal work. I focus predominantly on criminal defense and civil rights litigation. Uh, we also do some personal injury and commercial litigation as well. Okay. And is this your dream career? When you were starting from when you were a little girl, what was like what was your dream job? Well, based on the fourth grade book that I wrote, oh. The Journey to Candyland about a bunch of ants. Uh one had lost a leg when a Cheeto fell on it and he was called less one foot. Um, I had an about the author and apparently in fourth grade I wanted to be an inventor. Um, And I don't know if anyone has that job title at all. Um, But what I realize about that is I I kind of, that is my dream job because I'm schizophrenic with my passions. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a film director. I want to be a published novelist. I want to be 
a a salsa dancer. I want to you know, I want to do everything I can possibly do wow. legitimately in my life. But I also want to sit on the couch and watch television and be lazy. <laughs> right. So right. it's a constant uh, tension between those two. Do you feel like everyone is kind of like this in a way, or less people, more people are just like single minded? Well, when I you look at like some of the most famous, well-known names in any industry, I always think, well, there's no way they're like me because I've spent way too much time watching, you know, Netflix series till five in the morning. And, you know, sometimes you just get home from your day job and you're exhausted and you're tired and you don't invent and you don't do anything creative. But, you know, those people get interviewed and they talk about their favorite TV shows and um, their favorite sports and what they like to do on weekends. So I think you have to rest your mind um, and do different things in order to get inspiration and have the energy to ultimately invent something. But you did the show with Viola Davis. So that Netflix watching, that's research. (laughs) That was research. That's totally research. (laughs) Exactly. There's the marketing, you know, genius in Brianna. Okay. So the question that we have to ask in every show is tell us about a job that blew. So a job that blew. And I say that there's always an aspect of every job. If you do it long enough, that blows. Um, But it's got to have its, you know, it's like marriage. There's good times and bad times, even in the best of marriages. I love the lawyer (laughs) over explaining. Just fucking tell us about a job. It was was Brugger's Bagels. Okay, it was a (laughs) college job. Yes, it was apparently a mom and pop shop that had been purchased by Brugger's Bagels. And they tricked me and I wanted to live in that area during the summer because I was dating some guy. And they said, listen, we're going to give you a raise and promote you to Baker. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to make like $2 more an hour. But that involved me getting up at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my God. During a college summer where like you don't go to bed till Til- 2.30 yeah. in the morning. Right. And uh, bake bagels. And there was an actual uh, methodology to how you did it because you would put them all in the same oven. So you obviously can't put everything bagels before the cinnamon raisins. So it'd be like cinnamon, you know, plain, then cinnamon raisin, then sesame, then salt, then garlic, then everything. And wow. I would get, I never knew that. By yeah. the way, like looking back on that now, I'm like, oh, that's so easy. I could totally do that. I was so stressed out by it right. <laughs> that I actually had nightmares about like getting the order wrong of the bagels and you have to boil them first. <laughs> and I work with some gnarly people. Like I, I think I've developed some bizarre OCD from watching one of the employees actually hawk a loogie into someone's bagel who was rude to her. Oh. And and uh, I'm like, oh. should I have said that? Is it time to edit me? Out. Oh, no. no. Um, but it, it it was look, you have to do that kind of work to appreciate getting closer to your dream. Wait, job. so how long did you do that? I did it for a summer. You did the whole summer. The whole wow. summer. Did you go out still? Or you... I still went out. Wow. But you know, well, when, the you're, question when you're nineteen, you don't need sleep. That's have true. you have you made a bagel since then? I have not. Have you eaten? Bagels? I have totally eaten bagels. <laughs> you think right now, if I gave you the ingredients, you could make a bagel? No, I needed like massive boiler, um, a giant wooden spatula. Like I, I'd have I love to that follow. you know the tools. I know. I, I can smell it. I can see it. I can visualize it. I used wow. to work in a deli too at that age, also, and I used to at the time be like, "Oh, I'm so tired," and this and that, and blah blah. blah. But like, it was the best. 
of times. If you th- if like for me, right. it was like, like that was an amazing summer and talking to people and stacking the shelves with with soda cans. Yeah. Like that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and what you don't realize is you you lo- you actually learn something. You know, um, my my partner was talking to a client once and. He said, you know, find work. And he said, I only think I can find this kind of work. And he said, work is good. Work is great. There are millions of people out there trying to find jobs. Make the best of it, right? So as silly as it may sound, you're working the checkout counter. You're dealing with um, angry people, short-tempered people, lovely people, homeless people, you know, children, old folks, young folks. You meet a lot of people, too. Your people skills. But you're also dealing with people putting loogies in right now right. it's You're, both sides of the counter yeah, but some hear. of my best stories were from those times where the people that i met that i encountered funny things pe- friends that i made from people who came into the store so and, and like totally you said that. you develop people skills which yeah. ends up being an asset in almost every industry you work in i really want you to get a case and i want it to have to take place in a bagel shop so you can be like <laughs> you did it because the sesame bagel should have gone in like before the, the cinnamon raisin <laughs> a, a you... legally blonde permanent <laughs> wait a second your book that you wrote what was that character's name that lost the foot uh less, less one less foot? one foot. so maybe that was tied to your lawyer you know criminal defense accident uh, right cases. that was personal injury case that was never <laughs> pursued you, who represented him in case nobody in, had in no court. representation <laughs> and you you feel that today that he does not do. represent so okay so let's talk about your career evolution because we've talked a lot about you as a lawyer but that's not where you started no so i graduated from a lovely ivy league school brown university without a job <laughs> whoa why um I think I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I had this concept that I wanted to be a writer, but you can't really be a writer when you're 21 or 22 years old. You don't have life experience or maybe even the stamina involved to sit down and do a lot of writing. And I also thought, maybe I want to go into acting or maybe I want to go into film. And so I did what many people do move to New York City and become a waitress. (laughs) And so I did that while interviewing for uh, magazine jobs. And I had a... Wait, where were you waitressing? I, I, you know what? It was some place in Soho. I don't even remember the name. I ended up getting fired because they said I talked too much to customers and that we're not this kind of a place. You got to serve them. And, you know, I was like, oh, where are you from? Was (laughs) it fine dining or... It was like... Really good, um, trendy Vietnamese um, place. It was oh, somewhat upscale. It wasn't it was um, like Penang. Mekong it wasn't or Penang. I think it was like Mekong. I, huh. it they was, fired you for talking too much. Too much. I would have got fired they on just day said one. Yeah, that. you would have. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I ultimately was talking to a friend, and he said, if you want to work in the magazine industry, I know someone who is a uh, beauty director at Yves Saint Laurent. And uh, while you can't write for her, why don't you sit down with her and see what she suggests? So I did, and I was totally nervous and was donning a suit and had to go on the subway, which, by the way, was heaven because I didn't have air conditioning in your apartment. <laughs> in my apartment, and I didn't want to get sweat stains on my suit, and uh, it was so refreshing to get into that subway. <laughs> who, who would have thought that. it, right? Who remembers an right. air conditioning ride on and, a subway? And uh, this woman Crazy. was wonderful to me. And she gave me a list of magazines that she thought I should reach out to and ask for, I love this term, 
informational interviews. Mm-hmm. I know you don't have a job right now right. available for me, but I want to know what it's like. And it's less pressure on the individual that's interviewing you. Yeah, but it's also uh, for them, it's like, fuck, I don't have time to talk to this person, but I'm going to do it because I like... Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been there and now I have to pay mm-hmm. it forward. But um, Also, people like talking about themselves and their job. So if you're just a good listener like that, true. you get a lot of information. Right. Um, so she gave me a list of magazines. She said, here are the names of some of the editors I know. Why don't you call them up? And I just called every single person on that list. Now, I remember interviewing at Harper's Bazaar with, um, at the time she was the beauty director, was Emily Doherty, who's now the beauty director at Elle. And she was a Yale graduate, and she just said, look, you're overqualified. It's a matter of months. They could have an opening in one day. It could take three months. Just keep at it. You know what you're doing. You're right. good at this. Right. Awesome. So I did, and I ended up getting not my ideal job at the time. It was a magazine that ended up folding. It was called Girl, and it was right. a magazine for every girl <laughs> of all shapes and colors and sizes. Back when they were still launching it, magazines right. instead of closing Back, them. And, and before it was you know, popular to actually embrace different body sizes and shapes. And I didn't even get a job writing. I was the fashion assistant editor. So a lot of my duties involved putting clothing on clothing racks, adding captions to any pictures that were taken. And the editor-in-chief there was Kara Kagan. And um, she ended up going to Elle magazine. And even though I didn't work directly for her, she liked me. She knew I was there every day. I worked hard. They say showing up is half of it. It really is probably 80% of it. And she said, I don't have the power and control to hire you at L, but why don't you come interview with me? And uh, you'll interview with the editor-in-chief and see how that goes. So I got the job, which was great. Wow. Wow. And it was so exciting to work at L Magazine as a uh, 23-year-old, 22-year-old woman living in New York. And I made $23,000. I wow. don't know how I lived. I, I honestly. What year was this? This was, and now I'm dating myself. Yeah. So this had to be 2000. So from 2000 wow. to 2003, I worked at Elle magazine, and it was a very glamorous but tough job because you were working with deadlines. You were working with tons of personalities. You had to go, you know, the, the fun part is you could go to fashion shows. You could mm-hmm. go to photo shows. Well, you always had to take the perks because you right. made no money. You made no money. So the perks were everything. everything. What about yeah. celebrities? A lot of interaction? Um, I think at that age, I was so intimidated that if I saw a celebrity walking down the hallway, I would just, you know, like be cool, Ada. Just act cool and act like I didn't care that the celebrity was walking around. Right. Um, but we we ultimately work from the inside. So my job was to pitch ideas, um, also uh, take care of my beauty editors. So it was kind of like a personal assistant mm-hmm. slash editorial job. So I was responsible for writing articles, but also setting up her, you know, salon appointments and business luncheons and so forth. So you definitely worked with difficult personalities. In I that worked business. with very this, difficult personalities. Yeah. This sounds a little a like like Devil Wears Prada, where like you went in and someone was like, "I'm just going to give you a whole list of names and call on your behalf and also be like an yeah. assistant." But well, also, I mean, Elle is only like a 
step, step down away. from But Vogue. I mean, I'm like, maybe I just saw something about that recently. But anyway, that's sticking out to me. But the other thing is, for our listeners too, is, you know, it, that's a similar storyline to John the Chef, where he was overseas in Europe and just chefing for no money, working with big name people. He didn't know what the end result was. He, you know, there was just this kind of nose to the grindstone, like you're saying, make every single call on the list. I don't know what is going to happen right. from that, but just do the work and something has to happen from that. And and for me, the lesson there that if, you know, I was speaking to college students right now, I would tell them is don't not accept that job at, for example, a nameless magazine you've never heard of named Girl because you don't know who you're going to meet right. there. Right. And you don't know what references you're going to get from that. And if it weren't for that job, I could have said, I don't want to be a fashion assistant. I'm a writer. Or I don't want to work for a magazine that I've never heard of. Right. And I ultimately, right. but for that job, was working at, at Elle magazine. Right. So let's speed this forward a little bit. How many? How long were you at Elle? I was there for a little over three years. And then you made the decision to go to law school. Yes. Okay. And why? What, what provoked that? Well, when you write, when you have this kind of creative desire to write and you end up working at a business, right? You've got magazines to sell, advertising to sell, um, and you have an audience and a particular voice you have to use. It can take, for me, it was, it stopped being inspiring. Mm -hmm. And I looked forward and said, who do I want to be five years from now? So I think when you're working somewhere right. and you've been there for several years, what I like to do is I like to look at the top dog and say, do I want to be that person? Mm -hmm. Because if you want to be that person, then you're going to stay the course and until you're that person. Work, you know, however long it takes, eight years, 10 years. You, you should have talked to me about four <laughs> years into my PR agency work and said that to me because I would have been like, no, I don't want to be that. That right. is so interesting though. Wait, yeah. Like it's such a, it, like a target to, to set for yourself. Yeah. You know, to, to and we don't usually like track. that. Where do you see yourself in five years question? No, but it's <laughs> but not no, five years. I'm saying, that's smart. No, it's because smart. five years, that question opens up to like this abyss of like, I could be anything as mm -hmm. opposed to right. what you're saying is here's a specific role or looking or a person right. or a mm -hmm. thing that I want to do, which is totally different. It's a variation of where do you see yourself in five years? It's do you want to be the top right. of, you know, where you are right now? Right. What mm -hmm. would that look like and right. feel like? And I see these, like, for me personally, and believe me, there are times where I've got too many uh, criminal cases and there are very rough days. And a friend of mine who also from the fashion, the magazine industry ended up becoming an attorney too. She and I will have conversations and say, what were we complaining about? Free lipstick, free loot, free right. li Let's go back to those days. Why right. wasn't I satisfied? Yeah, but now you can about afford it. Right. No, that's true. Now <laughs> I can afford it. But, um, so I just, I, I felt like, okay, I have to do a job switch now, but um, my mom at the time was a photographer, and she was uh, living in downtown Manhattan before it was um, before the Lower East Side had Diane von Fustenberg and mm -hmm. Chanel and Prada. It had you know the kids from the movie Kids, mm -hmm. and I spent a summer, a few summers there. And got involved with her art. My mom always involved me in her. She was a photographer. She's a filmmaker now. And she would have photo shoots and just bring me along. Like, you hold the tape. You do this. You do right. that. And I would meet her subjects. And sometimes her subjects were, you know, uh, celebrities or m songwriters, um, 
She actually shot Biggie Smalls once, which was Whoa. amazing. Whoa. I didn't. I didn't get to go to that photo shoot. Um, shot him with a camera. Yeah, with You're a camera. Not solving <laughs> pro- we're not solving crimes here. Talk it's about how, line. No, talk about how a quote can be taken yes. out of context. Oh. Um, we found her. I <laughs> Aida shot Biggie. <laughs> no, her mom did. So, uh, sorry. So, um, so I realized we are not laughing about his death. No, just we to are put not. that yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimer. Um, Disclaimer. Did you know who he was at the time? I mean, you know, you a fan my mom didn't know who he was at the time because it was right as he was making his his uh, transition into the, but the uh, top hot top hat and the tuxedo yeah. and her, her pictures were featured and are still featured today in like vibe magazine and wow. looking back at Biggie's history. But I remember like seeing people on the street that were down and out. And I remember this one guy in the neighborhood who would get picked up by the police and I didn't really know what was going on. Then he'd get kind of come back home and then picked up and, and my parents had a very difficult divorce, and I'm kind of all over the place here, but my point is I, I started seeing how people with money and power versus the disenfranchised can really struggle in the criminal justice system or in matrimonial court or in, in you know, the, the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. And I always saw myself as a diplomat and very diplomatic, and I said, you know, I can write, I can be a lawyer and write, I can be a film director and create my own screenplay by creating a narrative and a voice for the underdog. I love rooting for the underdog. Me too. And I can do all these things by being a lawyer. And so as a lawyer, you get to be um, the director of your case. And as a lawyer, you get to write and advocate for those less fortunate. And your words, whether they're on paper or oral, mean something and have the ability to help other people so and I said, you're in the acting you wanted to, you thought about being uh, right you, right, you right. stage this i actually i forgot to mention i wrote a list of everything i like to do and it was one of those lists that you would never share with anyone else because they would have you know number 13 i love karaoke right, right? Like, like, <laughs> like things you're like all right i'm not gonna have a career in karaoke but i right. just kind of looked at that list and i said what career would kind of have all these skill sets some of which I don't even have, but, you know, I right. want to have. Right. And that just made sense. And I like that concept of being a public defender. You get to do a little acting in the courtroom. Sure. You get to do a lot of motion writing. You get to um, help people and listen to people. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. Wow. So you went to, to where'd you go to school? I went to Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. Which is... Tops. And, Tops. And how many years was this that? So that's three years. And during that time, I was like slightly a little older, slightly older than the average student because a lot of people go straight from, right. from college. Yeah. So, And I really wasn't that much older, but I was a snob about it. I'm like, oh, these youngins. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like You're 20, like, I have life right, experience. I was, I was 26 or 27 looking down at a 24-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I do that didn't shit have, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I couldn't date you. You're way too immature. Exactly. So... Um, um, uh, I participated in as many clinics as I could, and uh, is, I got. What is a law clinic? A what law is clinic. Um, it sounds creepy, but it's it actually does. not. So the Innocence Project is a clinic at okay. Cardozo, mm. um, founded and headed by Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, and they were the first people to really take what DNA does 
Um, Let's and call put, back Barry Sheck, though, one of OJ's lawyers. Yes, yes. one of OJ's lawyers. Um, the the lawyer who did a brilliant cross examination on the DNA in that case and the right. handling of evidence. So, you know, again, it's 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 about showing up. It's about connection. So I got to do the Innocence Project and work with Barry Sheck and participate in the exoneration of those who were wrongfully convicted. Wow! And that clinic was for about a year. And my supervisor, and she'll become important later, was Vanessa Pockin. And okay. at the time, she was a staff attorney supervising students. Got it. Now she's the director of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project. Wow. And for, I think most people know what the Innocence Project is, but for those who don't know, it's a uh, clinic that's run out of a law school where um, attorneys work there and they supervise students to try and get people who claim they've been wrongfully convicted to locate DNA evidence in their in their case, case right. advocate for that to be tested. And then if it's tested um, and it comes back as not that person, advocate for their exoneration and get innocent people out of jail. Right. So Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld created this and wow. then it blossomed. Now law schools all over the nation have, have their, their own, own innocence project, wow. which is, I, I feel like so kumbaya right now talking about, I'm like, it's a beautiful thing. Imagine having such a great, innovative, sure. they were public defenders. What's, mm -hmm. you is know? there a success rate that's been documented based on, on those findings? Here is something, when you talk about exonerations, you have to analyze the data. So I think there's been almost 400 DNA exonerations in our country. Okay. And there are approximately 2,000 exonerations that have occurred. That doesn't okay. mean that there's no other innocent people that are incarcerated. Those are just the successful exonerations where right. they've gone to court, they've had the uh, case vacated, and they're free and they've been exonerated and cleared. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think I... Yeah, getting, so it's it's... It's high, but it's like, obviously, there's more people that... Right, but here's something interesting. The Innocence Project's criteria for uh -huh. what clients they accept isn't, and I shouldn't speak for them, but at the time, this was my experience in 2005. Right. Um, I understood the criteria not to be, well, do they seem innocent versus do they not seem like... Okay, right. You That's know, not a judgment say. call, right. but... Is there DNA evidence in their case? Mm -hmm. And if so, and we tested it and it came back negative, would that exonerate him? I so, see. for example, if the person wasn't convicted because of a, a DNA sample found on a cigarette butt near the crime scene, testing that may tell you nothing. Right. But if this was a, a sexual assault and there was a rape kiss, kit from the 80s or 90s that hadn't been successfully tested, right. then that would absolutely exonerate the individual right. if it came back as somebody else's. So the conditions of the the original case definitely play a part into whether or not you even go down that road. It's not like right. you're looking at it going, oh, there's so much evidence against this guy. Even if there were DNA, we're not going to win this? Or, I mean, is it just strictly based We on would take cases with overwhelming evidence of guilt so long as, and I say we, I was an intern there at the time, so sure. I, I had no say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they listen to students, which is so nice. You know, you feel... You feel somewhat of an equal because you're doing real work right um and you're not an equal don't get me wrong right. but um my point is despite that kind of criteria 
their exoneration rate was like 50%. Wow. wow. Which is incredible. Okay, so I, I want to um, talk a little bit about, yes, you were a public defender and you worked for cases like this, but you've also worked for people who have money. And I, and I bring up Cal Harris because that's <laughs> why you were on Dateline. And um, so I just want to talk a little bit about that because, yes, you do. You are about the underdog. And maybe Cal Harris, you felt like he was the underdog because how many times was he tried? Three? Uh, in total, four. Four. Give us some quick background on Cal Harris. Do you want me to do it? Because I've I think, seen every Dateline. I, I, I want to hear Brianna's <laughs> take on what so, the background is. And now a commercial interlude from <laughs> so, our Michelle Augustine no. rep here and so, Dateline aficionado, Cal's, Brianna Hunt. Cal's wife, um, they were not in a happy marriage. And um, she may have been seeing some other men during the marriage. Tell, tell me, Stop me if I'm wrong, because it has been a while since I watched. Okay. But um, on 9-11... 2001, 9-11, she disappeared. And of course, because it was a huge moment in U.S. history, uh, it kind of didn't get as much attention attention because of that. Um, But Cal is a very wealthy man. He has, you know, and they were in like a small town in upstate New York, right? Was it New York? It was uh, Tioga County. Yeah, New York. Okay. Yes. Um, and he had a lot of land. And She's so excited. She, the wife, was last seen walking down her driveway. Right. right? Was it that? So, well, there, there are some issues about when she was last spotted. Okay. But she just disappeared. Never found. Her body's never been found. No. And Whoa. so Whoa. he was tried four times. Yes. How could he have been tried four times? Well, there was some hung juries in there, yes. No, oh, well, one hung jury with, with us until he was finally... I don't want to give it away that. He, <laughs> <laughs> no, you, but, I mean it happened what, in sixteen. That right. He, he I mean got? it's um it's sort of like the uh, it's sort of and not sort of like the Fotis case going on right now, a heavily contested divorce where the wife claims my husband's a crazy person and I'm scared of him, and um, one day she goes missing, mm-hmm. and they had four children. They have four children together, and they're all young. And uh, the police focused on him because he was the husband. And I say, but unlike Fotis, because Fotis is that uh, Brown graduate in Connecticut. He's I don't know dead if, now, right? Didn't he's he dead. Kill he committed suicide. Yeah. Right. Jeez. I say unlike him because th- there was really very little evidence against Cal Harris. Mm-hmm. And it was a circumstantial case. And it was predominantly character assassination of him. And he was an easy character to assassinate. And I say this because he was very wealthy in a small town where the average person wasn't. He owned multiple car dealerships. He employed half the town. So when he was originally selecting a jury, half the people on the jury knew him, him had worked for him, hated him, (laughs) you know, and, um, or knew his wife. And uh, he was, uh, but he also actually had a huge group following of support from uh, parents of his children's friends from school. He was also a lacrosse coach, soccer coach, you know, soccer dad. So he was super involved in the community and he had a type A personality and he could be a jerk. And it's something I would say to his face. And I've spent a lot of time with that man. (laughs) And guess what? So can I, right? Um, Right. And the wife, she had some boyfriends or a boyfriend like that were a little so she was shady seeing people they ultimately had decided to separate but she had been given advice by her matrimonial attorney not to abandon their home so they lived on like 
200 acres in this beautiful house on a lake. And um, although they never found her body, they found minute amounts of what they claim was bloodstain pattern uh, through bloodstain pattern analysis they they claimed it was evidence of large amounts of blood it actually wasn't and i'll get into that but ultimately four years after her disappearance they arrested him they indicted him he got convicted within hours um, of the trial finishing and then a witness came forward saying i actually saw her uh the evening of and she was in an argument with a younger man down outside of the driveway. You have That's to understand the driveway, the driveway is like driveway. A, a half a mile long right. driveway. Their property is enormous. Right. Um, and so the this matter, is all covered on the Dateline. This is mm-hmm. all right. covered on okay. the yeah many so. Datelines. Yeah, many I mean, Dateline. Yeah. Twenty four hours. Forty eight hours. Forty eight hours. Sorry, twenty four. Forty eight. <laughs> twenty twenty. Forty eight hours. Dateline Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> ID Network. Um, so uh, and it is a fascinating story. And she, you know, it was a beautiful, beautiful woman and a, a very loving mom. And that's the saddest part is that those they had two how many daughters wasn't that they had. Two daughters, two boys. Yeah. And so anyway, the case gets overturned because of there's evidence, new witnesses, totally changes the timeline. It gets retried. He gets convicted. Again. Again. Jesus. He ends up spending three and a half years in upstate prison Aye, sing, as sing. a middle-aged Caucasian millionaire mm-hmm. who has never done a day of jail in his life. And like as maximum a, security? Yes, as a, and as a single father, right? Well, and because now those he's got kids, four who took, kids. Who raised those kids? Um, his a combination of friends and aunt and, you know, so family really took care of the kids. And by the way, wow. he parented from the prison. So you would think, How oh, my God. from a prison? What I mean by that is he would ground his kids if they misbehaved. No. He would lecture them on the phone. Wow. Like, he just never stopped being or a dad. Or is that just being a type A? Well, that's <laughs> just a, kidding. kind of a type A. <laughs> um, but also Wait, so it's okay a, to lecture solid... your kids? I just had a self-reflective moment. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, apparently it is. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. Well, so I don't want to spend too that. much time on right. that case, but I just wanted to talk about the fact that you do have clients who, they're not always, like, right. financially and, down. And well, jump to the end. Where is he now? Well, the good news is we we ultimately he then hired us and we did his third trial, um, an appeal. We did. We, well, he won the appeal. Then he hired our law firm to represent him and try the case. We won a change of venue. We tried it in Schoharie County, which I had never heard of prior to that trial. Right. And we picked a jury, tried it in five months, and then had a hung jury after <sighs> twelve days or ten days of deliberation. Then we retried it. We had a different judge, Judge Mott. We waived the jury in this case. And after really? two and a half months, he acquitted. Wow. And on the day of his acquittal, his oldest son found out he got into Cornell. Aww. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Did they ever find the killer? No. The other guy? The kid that was we, fighting with her? We, we submitted that it was two individuals that she hung out with. But uh, 
they haven't. Nobody pursued it. No. Can I just ask one quick clarifying question about the DNA thing? Yep. So when you are the Innocence or any of these Innocence projects finds DNA, is it just meant to exonerate that person who's been convicted, or is it also used or meant to find the person who should have been rightfully accused or convicted? It's like kill two birds with one stone. It is. is. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of cases, um, when you're when you're um, seeking DNA evidence in a case, you have to get the prosecutor to agree to do the testing because they're the ones, along with the police department, that actually is holding on to that evidence and has to authorize the testing of it and right. who are you going to have it tested by, what lab, are we going to split this hair, are we going to, you know, how are we going to conduct this, and then what does it mean once we get the testing? So once they get a profile, the police department and the government has the power and authority to run that profile through the DNA database. There's a national database right. of prior offenders whose DNA is already in the system. So, and from time to time, you'll get a hit and actually solve the crime. So you'll be able to exonerate an individual and then actually... Get another criminal off the street. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So I want to take this moment as your personal publicist, just to because we're running out of time. So... Um, to our listeners, you may have seen Aida recently on ABC News talking about the Weinstein case. As we mentioned before, you also produced the show on ABC. It was on ABC, yes. right? That was called Last Defense. And that was 2018? That was it? I think so. Yes, yes. But I did see that they're going to rerun it, I think, February 29th, I saw that. Right. Yeah. So um, if you haven't seen it, check it out because I think you can always like go to ABC.com and maybe watch it on there. Right? It, yes, abc.com, and now it's being uh, shown on the ID network as well. Okay. Wow. And the whole point of the name of the show, A St- Solid Conviction, is the fact that Aida has a st- solid conviction, but um, and the irony is she's fighting against these cases that did not have solid convictions. And that show, the two people that were highlighted, um, the cases don't feel like they necessarily were given the right or they were given justice right do you want to talk a little bit about the two sure people? and and here's just because of, of of your podcast focusing so much on jobs and finding your dream job and how you go about that that show i co-created with vanessa potkin i was bringing you oh. back to who, that. <laughs> thank you well done was now the... i was like unfortunately i spelled it out but very clever <laughs> she's, she's, she's a good those. lawyer she knows how to loop it back into <laughs> earlier information i can read cues i vote to convict uh, <laughs> so um i was drinking wine in spain with my mom saying i'm kind of in a rut with criminal practice i want to do something creative that highlights issues in the justice system kind of on a macro scale not just one person at a time. And I started texting Vanessa, let's do a TV show on death row inmates. And she pointed me to a study that 4% of people on death row are actually innocent, which sounds like a low number, but you're executing these people. And if you have 3,000 people right now, or roughly that many people on death row, that means that you're going to execute 120 innocent people well even one innocent person being executed right right could you imagine just sitting there being like i didn't do this no and i am gonna die for this no it's fucked up so let's talk about the two people that were featured just so the two people that we ended up selecting and focusing on was uh darley rotier a uh woman from texas uh whose two children were murdered um 
in her home while she was sleeping next to them. She was also attacked and had um, severe lacerations on her neck that were almost fatal. And she called 911 and said, somebody attacked my baby, somebody attacked my babies. She got, um, she's always maintained her innocence and there's evidence supporting her innocence, but she was tried and convicted and sentenced to death. And she's been on death row for nearly 20 years with very little evidence against her. And what about the husband? Where was he? The husband was sleeping upstairs. So a lot of these facts that you first hear in the news, you'll go, well, that's weird. And then when you break it down, it makes sense. So she um, had a newborn and the newborn Mm -hmm. lived. And she had been sleeping with the newborn and dealing with the no sleeping and the breastfeeding. And to give attention to the other two kids, from time to time, she would do movie night with them. So her husband would sleep upstairs with the newborn and she would, you know, kind of make a fort out of the couch and watch movies, eat popcorn with her to, uh, boys. That way they got some attention and kind of fall asleep downstairs. And that's what happened that night. But my question is, was the husband looked at as the, so, um, he, he, if Darley, let's put it this way. If Darley had died, He would have been been suspect number one. Right. Um, And they looked into him a bit, but not like they, it seems their efforts were focused on successfully convicting Darley as opposed to successfully investigating the case and taking up as many leads as possible. How did they justify her own injuries? They said they were self-inflicted and they called the wounds superficial and they tried to compare and contrast her wounds to the wounds of the were children. They knife wounds? They were knife wounds. And, um, you know, there was many reasonable so explanations you, for that. She wasn't sleep. She woke up halfway through. She fought back. She She's an adult. She didn't right, recognize you know? the person? No, she described him. It was a vague description. You have to understand she woke up. Right. In the middle. And this catastrophe was happening. And she ultimately screamed, chased him out, called 911. And if you listen to that 911 call, it is horrific. horrific. Did they, did, were they robbed? Like what would they weren't robbed? So that was the state's part of the state's argument was, you know, this wasn't a, a burglary break in robbery or they would have taken something, but look at all the jewelry that still remains in the house. Where was just give me some specs. Where was this? Uh, what state? Texas. 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 Yeah. An older woman, younger woman. She was a young, hot mom. Um, really? and she had bleach blonde hair and implants and sequins dresses. And I, you know, the, the, the case was tried not in Dallas, where they were from, right. but actually the prosecutor asked for a change of venue. So it went to this little tiny, conservative, middle-class town right. who didn't like the likes of Darley with her hoochie it's mama horrific. clothing. Right. And they commented on that, and the prosecutor used that to do some character assassination. Right, so- and also um, she, after they died... There was video, right? There was video of her at their grave celebrating. Right. Or having and like and a, this was another way. Darley. She went to their, you can tell the ice. Well, Wait, what, what? Wait, what? Yes. So what had happened was the um, kid, one of the, one of her sons was about to turn seven. Right. And they had already sent the birthday invites out. Right. To all the different kids, and she loved having huge, big parties. And what happened is, their two kids die. 
they're having a funeral and one of her family members said, should we, you know, cancel these invitations? And they said, no, we should have these people over to the funeral and we'll have a funeral, but we should also honor their beautiful lives. And, you know, her sister, I think, was advocating for that. And so we should celebrate their beautiful lives and, and after the funeral, have a birthday party for them, right? So that's what they did. So what happened is they had the funeral and if you looked at the entirety of the video, right. they are sobbing, they are saying prayers, the family is clearly mourning, they are clearly grieving. Right. But then for the, for the kids, because they're kids here, right. they have a celebration. And what happened was, is she took out, by the way, she didn't purchase the stuff, like her family and friends purchased stuff for the birthday party. She takes out the silly string and she's chewing bubble gum and she sprays it all over the tombstones. And the police were surreptitiously spying on her behind bushes right. and they took this clip and it's said, like is this how TV. a mom yeah. it's like celebrates? Right. I mean, and let's be honest, it was not in the best form probably right. to do that. No, but I'll say this. My father just passed away a year ago and we just went back to the grave to do the unveiling and we're all sitting around and we're doing, we're crying and doing some things and then somebody or something happened and we're all laughing. You know, like something funny happened. You know, like right. break the tension of this like right. terribly somber moment. So, and if somebody were to catch that on video, right. it's I all, could absolutely or, them being like, oh, you sick fucks. What are you laughing yeah, right. about? Right, exactly. It's, it's not the it's case. It's really hard. You can't put yourself in that person's situation. I mean, even Jackie O, had JFK Jr.'s third birthday party the day that they buried his dad. Okay. Because it was his birthday. I mean, it still went on. Like, you know what I'm saying? You just don't know, but unfortunately, because they wanted to pin it on her as the potential killer... That, that's and not this is all in the show that you do with Viola Davis, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a docu-series. Docu so you series. see Darley's story. Can I ask you a question just in, in you talking about all this? It was interesting. Uh, do you have, do you find, or is this training you took or maybe that you're interested in acting or whatever, but do you have to kind of become this like super empathetic person to understand situations? It's very similar to acting. Like I have to understand the conditions that this person lived in to understand their story, to be able to portray that story, to a jury, you know, do you find yourself having to kind of almost like not live their life, but become them and see where and who they are, how they live? Well, I think what happens is you, you meet a client, you meet someone and then you meet their family members and you start getting to know them. And then you're in court and the prosecutor is saying horrible things and maybe uh, things that might not even be true. And at that point, you realize it's not your family member, it's not your friend, but you realize how can the jury see my client the way I do? Mm-hmm. And so that that's the that's where the art of communication comes in, right? right? Like I want the jury to see him as empathetically as I do. Um, I want them to see him laughing, making a joke. I want them to see the good in this person. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean that that's that's a creative process. Let's talk about the other person featured. Uh, Julius Jones has now, the coolest thing, by the way, about Julius Jones, who was featured in The Last Defense, is Darlie Rote already had a lot of publicity. No one had heard of Julius Jones. Julius Jones um, is from Oklahoma, and he was a 19-year-old all-star. I think he had both like a, a football and educational scholarship, came from humble, beautiful parents, a big family, right. siblings. And in my view, he was wrongfully convicted for a robbery gone bad 
where an individual was shot in front of his children and his sister. And he's been incarcerated for 20 years. Jesus. And it was a setup. And it was, and, and yes, many people feel they that it was. They set him a, up. Yeah. They set him up because he was, look, he was hanging out with some kids that had a rap sheet or were dealing with some grand yeah. larcenies. And a lot of people feel that they set him up and they basically cooperated with law enforcement that they were actually the real perpetrators, but they sold him out and planted evidence in his home. Uh, that way they could avoid uh, what, potential. What would be the benefit of that for them? I mean, Well, they got arrested. So one of them gets arrested and the officer starts questioning individuals and then they start singing because the first one to sing, as one of the detectives says, is going to get the best deal. Mm -hmm. right. And so when cops are pulling over a young teenage or a teenager or a college student who um, has a criminal record um, and start saying things like the guy died you're going down you'll be fried um by a prosecutor who at the time was known for seeking the death penalty on almost all his murder cases right. um people implicated julius jones and i think wrongfully so and what's interesting is the leading cause of uh, wrongful convictions in death penalty cases, unlike in other cases, but in death penalty cases, is um, is is informant testimony. Oh wow! And that's, that's harder to prove, right? right? Because not most informants don't come in. And right. this guy got a deal for testifying against Julius that he not only avoided the death penalty, not only avoided life incarceration, but was told he'd get. 13 years and only served 15 of those years for a murder. Wait, and didn't, is he the same guy that spent the night at Julius's house? He's the same guy that spent the night at Julius's house and um, uh, in his bedroom where ultimately the gun was, was found. found. Yeah. Which I'm not even sure matches. All right. That's going to gonna just get me angry talking about all okay. that. Okay. <laughs> well, on the last note, um, I know you had made the comment earlier about seeing celebrities when you're at Elle magazine, but we also talked about the celebrities that you've run into in your new job as yeah, a lawyer I, or not I, new job. I'm glad I chose uh, the law over Hollywood because <laughs> I have to say, these days I'm seeing more celebrities in jail than I am, wow. you know, when I visit friends in L.A. So, can you uh, just throw name drop? Sure. Somebody's? So, in the time that I've been um, visiting MCC, which is the federal detention facility in Manhattan, El Chapo's been in there. I would run into Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I haven't run into Avenatti yet, but you he's know there. he's there. So it, it's it's. Do you becoming... ever see them and you're like, oh my god, selfie? No. I this on Instagram. <laughs> well, well, they don't let you bring your cell phones in. Uh, <laughs> wait, let me sketch you. I'm sketching. Let me wow, call my crazy. mom. You like see them walk? Like you just, yeah. that's the craziest yeah. thing. Right? Well, wow. we are talking about a different kind of celebrity, but yes, they're very well known people. Wow. Infamous. Wow. Infamous. Right. Wow. All right. Well, we usually do a game, but we've run out of time and do ask her one question because these questions are kind of long right. so maybe ask her like one okay so the name of the game is on the case and i there are different movies and tv shows Ooh. where law is okay. a focus so um we'll do, da, 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 da. do the first one okay this new york lawyer has never won a case when his teenage cousin bill and his friend stan are accused of murder in a backwater alabama town it's up to the nervous lawyer to save him from jail even though he's only ever tried personal injury cases before and none of them successfully 
What movie? Somebody won an Oscar for this movie. Oh, my God. My biological clock is ticking <laughs> like this. And in this case, I don't know when I'm going to have a, have a child. <laughs> No, oh, have a get married. Get married. Yes. Oh my no god, that would have been shameful, shameful if I got that wrong. Do the last one. Okay, this film, adapted from a famous novel, is a classic piece of movie history. It tells the story of a small town lawyer who is filled with dignity and gravitas as he defends an innocent black man from the ire of a prejudiced white jury. And it's on Broadway now. Yeah. Oh, it's um. Now I just I'm, saw I'm it. Call it the Finch. Uh, Mockingbird. To kill a mockingjay. Mockingjay. To kill a um, the Boston law firm Crane, Poole, and Schmidt deals in the often high-priced world of civil litigation where swarmy Alan Shore feels at home. <sighs> Loose cannon Denny Crane has... Boston legal. Yeah. Wow. All right. Good job. Good All job. Right. So thank you so yeah, much thank for you coming. So thank much. you so much for sharing your story. Awesome. Follow, follow, look, your passions from when you write. Go back to your fourth grade book writing and see who needs <laughs> better representation in your in your stories. But obviously, <laughs> it's all connected and it's great that you followed but your also, heart. Look at all the things you love and how right. one job might fulfill make all those list. different make things. Make your list. Life right? karaoke, whatever it is. You know, right. Make your list. I have to ask you because you talked about Netflix and we jo- I joked that maybe that inspired. Did you watch Making a Murderer on Netflix? I watched the first one, not the, not the second season. I part of the second season. What did you think of the first season? The first one was incredible and that uh, uh, he was exonerated while I was at the Innocence Project or shortly after. So I was watching his case and then I learned he got rearrested and I didn't know much about the case. And I, those, those um, filmmakers came into gold. They did. Uh, that story was unbelievable. It was, and it was especially unbelievable because you see it all the time happening to um, minorities. But man, like here's white trash and, yep. you know, it's not. It can happen even, to anyone. It can happen to anybody. It doesn't like, matter what. What your wallet anyway, says. Give us your socials real yeah. quick. Yeah. What are, you have, do you have social any social handles? media? People oh, wanna... I do. I have a Twitter account. I have it randomly under v- Veronica Ferrer um, and Instagram, Aida Ferrer Lice. And really, if you, you know. Lice, the, L-E-I-S. L-E-I-S, yeah. Right. And then uh, our firm website is kind of the easiest place Bark to see, see what we're up to. Bark at Epstein. I need a license ring. I love it. Thank you. Yes. Wow, that's Google so her. Look up all the fantastic And she's Spanish with she's a German done. name. Ooh, European and American. I love it. Uh, give us your socials, Brianna. Uh, at Brie Haas Why could you never be more excited uh, about that? No. Just be excited at about Jobs it. At Jobs Blowcast. There we go. Jobs Blowcast. Jobs Blowcast. Jobs Blowpodcast.com. Check it out. You can see some pics and some links for Aida as well. I'm Mr. Josh Hyman. Hey, uh, keep reviewing, liking, subscribing if you like what we're doing here. Just a special shout out to my friend from college. Amy Aculin Michaelitis, who just randomly found us on the iTunes podcast list. Because she was looking for something. She was looking for something. (laughs) She found us. I got a nice message from her saying, what a nice surprise. So, hey, we're out there. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Please give us your feedback. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Review like five stars. Five stars only. What are we going to go out on? What song are we going to go out on? I think we should go out from the monologue of, you can't handle the truth. We live in a world of... You love that? I love (laughs) Love that. that, That's what it's going to be. We live in a world of walls and these walls. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel? 
Lieutenant Kendrick order the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut these guys loose! Your Honor, you had markets inside of Boney Transport! Your Honor, you doctored the logbook! Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor! Consider yourself in contempt! Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives, and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did!